once you shake the kaleidoscope, uh, you can never be quite certain what colours will end up where, and that's what the, the UK has done by voting to leave the European Union. Well, let's put it this way. We've opened a Pandora's box filled with cans of worms. Hello and welcome to Extra Innings from the Ballpark, a podcast from the US Centre here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson. And I'm Denise Barron. So obviously Americans have heard about what's going on over here in the UK and the vote to leave the EU, also known as Brexit. I probably got more emails and Facebook messages on the day after the Brexit vote than I did on my birthday. But it's not just my friends. American journalism has been full of Brexit headlines. It seems like my countrymen are concerned, fascinated, and even a little baffled by this topic. So we saw an opportunity to provide some answers for our listeners on the other side of the pond to all the questions Americans have about Brexit but were afraid to ask. We've gathered some of the LSE's top experts on the EU, UK, and Brexit, and we spoke with them about what's going on here, repercussions for the rest of the world, and what the US can learn from this historic vote. So let's start out with the basics. And I mean, seriously, the basics. Tony Travers is a professor of government here at the LSE, and he runs a program on British government. Tony joined us, and we started out with a quick lightning round of abbreviations, names, and all of those little things you've been meaning to Google, but you keep forgetting. So MP stands for? Member of Parliament. PM stands for? Prime Minister. The Prime Minister as of a couple days ago was? David Cameron. The next one will be? Theresa May. All right. And uh, MPs make laws where? Where do they meet? They meet in the House of Commons, which is one of the two Houses of Parliament, the other being the House of Lords. Perfect. And then the last one is, where did the word Brexit come from? I've no idea is the honest truth. Um, It was one of those words that just appeared. Uh, Clever idea, fusing as it did Britain and exit, I suppose, uh, so Brexit. And then, it, of course, it then spawned uh, people on the other side who were in favour of Remain. Uh, but Brexit is what stuck, and as the UK voted to leave, we'll hear a lot more about it. And another thing I want to mention is that the, the, quote, City of London, or just the city, refers to the financial district here in London, kind of like the British counterpart to Wall Street. Oh, that was a good explanation. It's, like it that. took me so long. Really? It took me so long to figure that out. Yeah. So let's just jump right in. We spoke with Sarah Hageman, an assistant professor in the European Institute here at the LSE, and asked her about the divisions between British voters on the topic of Brexit and how the Remain and Leave campaigns played off those divisions. And it was very much a campaign that divided specific groups in society. We had a division according to geography, a generational division. We had a division between metropolitan cities and more rural areas and regions, and between um, ed- education levels in 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 the population. And if we look at the topics that people cared about in the referendum, which were mainly three topics: it was on the economy, it was on migration. And it was on the issue of sovereignty and and the UK's uh, independence from from Europe. So switching gears a little bit, uh, let's talk about the economics of Brexit. An American who submitted a question asked why the stock market, quote, freaked out following the Brexit vote. So why is that? And 
are are the markets going to continue to fluctuate? Well, they'll clearly continue to kind of fluctuate so, um, in, in the way that markets always do. And that's Tim Oliver. I'm a Dowendorf Fellow here at LSE Ideas. I work on transatlantic relationships and also the UK-EU relationship. They, they had a shock because a lot of people in the city, a lot of people in the financial services industries across the world, um, a lot of bankers around the world had assumed that Britain would vote to remain, even if it was going to be a slim majority. All the opinion polls pointed that way. So therefore, they they'd kind of priced that in. Um, so it came as a bit of a shock that Britain voted to leave. And the reason there might be a lot of uncertainty for the next few years in the markets um, is because no one's too sure what's going to happen next. Is Britain going to stay in the single market? That's the biggest question overhanging this or will it have to withdraw from the single market will it be able to negotiate some form of special trade relationship with the european union or will it not um that doesn't just rely upon the united kingdom itself um that relies upon how the rest of the european union is going to respond and that is well let's put it this way we've opened a pandora's box filled with cans of worms um if britain wants to get a new relationship with the european union it can't rely upon just doing a deal with the EU as one group of coherent countries sitting down together and talking in a coherent way. It's going to have to do a deal with 27 member states, the European Parliament, the European Commission might have its own view, and there's a good chance, depending on the type of deal that's negotiated, that the other 27 members of the European Union, just like with TTIP or the Canadian-European trade deal, might have to approve this each individually through their own domestic processes. So you could see referendums elsewhere in the European Union on whether or not the new deal with the UK is acceptable to that country's people. So given that Brexit is happening, for a lot of people the timeline's really unclear. When is this going to start taking effect and what happens first? What needs to happen is that the government formally has to inform the remaining EU members that the UK wishes to leave the EU. Um, So the Prime Minister will have to send a letter triggering what's called Article 50 of the EU treaties. um, And that allows for a two-year negotiation period between the UK and the EU in settling how that withdrawal um, has to take place. Again, here's Tony Travers. Which effectively would require the British Prime Minister as the head of government informing... Uh, under this article, and informing the European uh, Union, presumably the European Commission, that um, the United Kingdom intended to leave the European Union. That hasn't happened yet, but it is assumed that the new Prime Minister, Theresa May, will press that button in weeks rather than months. But she said, interestingly, that she'd like to try to do some early negotiations first. Now, whether her remaining uh, 27 European partners are prepared to allow the UK to do that, we'll find out quite soon. Now, we have a constitutional dilemma at the moment in the UK. Lawyers are debating at the moment whether that notification by the Prime Minister requires parliamentary action. It seems as if now it is coming to a conclusion that it will need parliamentary approval and and a bill to be passed in order for the Prime Minister to be able to trigger Article 50. But um, there's a lot of politics about that because the parties are so split and because a majority in Parliament is actually not in favour of leaving Brexit. So they would have to 
pass a bill that they do not agree with in order to uh, for the process to take place. So it might be stalled for quite some time if that doesn't happen. I mean, how how long can the British government go, given that we voted as, as we voted as a country, how long can they go for? Can, can, could this go on for, for years, possibly? I think that the triggering of Article 50 will have to come within foreseeable future because there are a number of big pressures, uh, both here in the UK and in the EU, for things to move soon. And to, to clarify one thing that you mentioned in there, Article 50. Now, that's not found in anything um, that just pertains to the UK, since the UK doesn't have a written constitution. Where is Article 50? Where, where is that actually located? It was located in the Lisbon Treaty in 2009, and it's a procedure to allow any country to leave the EU. Uh, in fact, no, well, only one territory has left the EU before, and that's intriguingly Greenland. And Greenland has a um, constitutional link to Denmark, so it was effectively not exactly part of Denmark leaving the European Union, but uh, it, and Greenland, of course, is a relatively small place, well, large place, actually, but with a small population compared with the UK. And so this is the first time this procedure will have been used at all. So one, one question that we had uh, was, why wasn't this referendum, so it, was a, it had to be 50% plus one to win, why not 75% for something that's so important? Why not have a threshold that was much higher so that it would be a very, very decisive vote either way? Well, it's true. There have been referendums in the past in Britain which had uh, thresholds in them. But this one, it was decided, I think, that David Cameron, the Prime Minister, who allowed, or in fact proposed, a referendum, largely to sort out the incredible disagreements within his own party, the Conservative Party, about this. I think he must have decided that anything like a threshold would look as if it was skewing the system and wouldn't sort out the underlying problem. And the underlying problem was there's a large chunk of his own party, the Conservative Party, wanted to leave the European Union or didn't like the European Union at all. And so any suggestion of a, say, two-thirds threshold or a 70% threshold would have looked like skewing it so far that he wouldn't have solved the problem had he won the referendum and Britain voted to remain. So a lot of people uh, uh, seem to be very upset about the outcome, the, the Remainers. Uh, could there be a second vote to reverse Brexit? Well, in principle, of course, Parliament could vote to hold a second referendum. But I think it's as near as zero as you can get that there will be such a thing. I mean, there are those who strongly feel that they wanted to remain in the European Union who would love to hold a referendum, and I think it gives them something to hope for, and hope is very important in life. But I think the truth is that um, MPs feel that they, they voted to have a referendum, the referendum happened, the rules were clear. In Britain, there's a very strong sense that one vote is enough to win, and leave one. And, you know, we know from some research that's been done since the election that uh, about 420 uh, constituencies out of 650 voted to leave. Now, the, the referendum wasn't counted uh, by parliamentary constituency. It was actually correct, collected, sorry, it was counted by municipality. But uh, political scientists have been able to redivide these numbers, make them fit parliamentary constituencies, and it shows that 
about two-thirds of MPs would discover that their voters voted to leave. And if they didn't now leave, I think those MPs would think there'd be some kind of political insurrection, if not an actual one. Say, so obviously it looks like we are going to leave, and we're, we're going to take it however long that takes. Say, ten years down the line, politicians or the people in general realise they've made a horrible mistake and want to go crawling back to the EU and, and rejoin in, in some fashion. Is that possible? Would they have us? Well, everything is possible in politics, and I think that we will be looking at a very different EU by that time. Uh, the continent as a whole is very much challenged by a number of big topics at the moment. I would say Brexit is one of the smaller ones. Um, but we are looking at um, still the worst humanitarian uh, challenge since the World War II in terms of the refugee situation on the borders of Europe and that will continue to have an effect on politics in the continent. We will see it in the general elections coming up in Germany and France and others. Um, but also um, because uh, the, uh, the EU is facing um, a very dire situation economically once again, uh, in fact, I think that this time around it might be even more severe than what we've seen with Greece uh, previously because now there are real threats to uh, the big economies in Italy and Spain. And so whatever happens on those two topics, the refugee situation, migration situation and the economy in Europe will define what the EU itself will look like. Um, a few years down, down the line. And I think that the UK will um, run a parallel course to what happens in, in Europe. But a lot depends, of course, on both um, the direction that the EU now takes and as well as the um, direction that the UK takes as independent from, from the EU. So no matter what, leave or, or what, whatever we will still be intimately affected by whatever happens in Europe economically and, and all the other... Certainly. I mean, the uh, the UK is uh, a very important part of Europe as a continent and uh, is very much interlinked politically, economically, even to some degree culturally. Um, and um, it is um, clear from history that whatever happens in Europe has a big impact in the UK. So um, the UK has an interest in staying connected and taking part in the future, uh, in the debates on the future of, of, the, of the EU and of Europe, um, whether it's a member or not. So let's go back to the economic impact and comparisons. Obviously, there are major trade implications with the UK leaving the EU, since trade agreements are a significant part of EU membership. Our American listeners might be more familiar with trade agreements such as NAFTA. So how does this compare with the hypothetical scenario of the U.S. leaving NAFTA? Again, Tim Oliver. The U.K. leaving the European Union's single market is arguably a far more, a far more greater significance to the U.K. than the United States leaving NAFTA. Um, the United States has a huge continental domestic economy, 
the United Kingdom's economy is very globalized and very Europeanized and that it's connected far more than most other countries are um, to what goes on in other states. And its relationship with the rest of the European Union is its single biggest trading relationship collectively um, that it still has. Um, Its biggest trading partners are countries such as the Netherlands, the Irish Republic, Germany, France, and so forth. And the single market of the European Union is not just about free trade in goods, which is what traditional free trading areas have been about or free trade deals are often about. It's also about free movement of goods, free movement of people, free movement of services and free movement of capital. So you have this coherent single market that's also a customs union. So it's a very different thing to NAFTA. Now, Britain, in leaving that, yes, I don't think anybody doubts that the British economy is big enough that it would be able to survive in some way outside the single market, but there would be a big economic cost from doing so, a transitionary cost. Um, And transitioning out of the single market is widely considered to be possibly something that even a lot of Eurosceptics don't want to see. They want to stay in the single market, but they don't want to see free movement of peoples, or at least not in the way that it's happened so far. They don't want to see EU laws apply to the United Kingdom, but then how do you have a single market without any kind of single um, uh, kind of lawmaking body that decides upon regulations? So there's going to be tensions about that. And from their perspective, the EU has not failed, um, has failed um, when it comes to the single market in services, for example, which is the UK's strength. So the UK is trying to export its services, say, from the city of London or other areas to the rest of the European Union. But the EU or other countries in the EU remain quite protectionist or unwilling to open up their markets on services. So the UK has felt frustrated that the rest of the EU has not been able to move on this. So in leaving the EU, the UK faces a far more difficult um, challenge than the United States leaving NAFTA. NAFTA is very traditional trade economics. The European Union is not just that. It's a political union. It's a social union. It's an economic union. It's also, to a certain extent, a security union. So it's a much bigger um, game. So thinking about uh, trade agreements and and what the UK's future is, President Obama, when he was here uh, not too long ago, said that the UK would probably go back to the back of the queue. We wouldn't be uh, being negotiating and we would have a much diminished negotiating position. Do you think that's going to be the case? Are there signs that that's the case? What's going to happen next? The UK goes to the back of the queue if it can't negotiate a place within the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, TTIP, which is the big trade deal that the United States and the European Union are trying, still trying to reach agreement over. So if it can't be part of that, then it's firmly at the back of the queue because the queue is TTIP. That's the number one um, trade deal that, at least at the moment in Washington and Brussels, um, people are interested in. Now, There are several factors here we have to take into account. First of all, if it's a President Trump, there's no queue because there's no trade deals. Um, We're assuming that TTIP, along with lots of other trade deals, would just die. Um, So, okay, so a lot hangs on whether it's a President Hillary Clinton. Now, okay, Hillary has become more uh, sceptical about trade agreements, such as the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. She's expressed scepticism about the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, but TTIP, from a U.S. perspective, is a bit of a different ball game compared to TPP, because here it's about um, concerns that European high standards, regulatory standards, are going to undermine the United States rather than undercut it. Although in Europe, the concern is that U.S. low standards will undercut European standards. We can debate that, um, given it was the United States that discovered what Volkswagen was doing with its emissions tests. Um, but nevertheless, 
Um, it's TTIP that at the moment remains the main trading deal that's on the table. However, it's run into real problems. Getting it through Europe is going to be extremely difficult. Um, there is widespread opposition across the European Union in different states, such as Germany and France and Britain. TTIP came up during the referendum campaign here in the UK because of the concerns that have been expressed by mainly left-wing um, kind of public service campaigning groups about the threat that TTIP, from their perspective, poses towards things like the National Health Service. So you had people campaigning for Britain to leave the EU to get out of TTIP to prevent the privatisation of the NHS. I mean, this was this is connecting some very disparate things, but nevertheless, you could see a certain logic. Um, nevertheless, Britain has been a keen advocate of TTIP. It's, in, to some extent, it was one of the architects, um, the early architects of, 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 of TTIP. So Britain leaving throws TTIP into doubt even more. So if TTIP collapses, the queue isn't quite so long anymore um, because it could be easier for the UK and the US to do a straightforward economic free trade deal. However, again, this all depends on one, what happens to the UK's relationship with the European Union? Will it be able to remain within the European single market and therefore, to some extent, continue to benefit from the free trade deals that the European Union has negotiated with other countries? Will the UK be in a position to negotiate a trade deal? We have 20 ne trade negotiators because the EU has done trade negotiations for the UK for the last 40 years. So Britain has about 20 trade negotiators, of which half are over the age of 80. So Britain is not in a position to negotiate anything here. And the United States, along with lots of other countries, knows this and would therefore drive an incredibly hard deal um, and probably Britain would lose out. So it wouldn't be in a very strong position to do so, um, at least not initially. Um, you know, there's, no, there's no such thing as friends in, in international trade negotiations. The special relationship between the UK and the US wouldn't really matter when it comes down to real hard trade negotiations. It could get pretty bloody. OK, so getting back to politics, let's talk about the Leave campaign supporters and specifically UKIP. UKIP stands for the United Kingdom Independence Party. And they're a somewhat recently formed far-right, nationalistic, and populist political party. It's important to point out that UKIP is sort of an offshoot from the Conservative Party, which is often referred to as the Tories. Think of them as sort of the British cousins of the GOP. And the Tories, that's the party of David Cameron, Theresa May, and Boris Johnson. A lot of people are sort of uh, drawing on the, the links between populism in the States and populism here. Would it be fair to say the kind of people who were UKIP supporters are supported to leave? Would, would they be cousins of Donald Trump's supporters, possibly, in terms of wanting to, to really stick it to the system? The, so the UKIP supporters are certainly anti-establishment uh, supporters, and I guess you can say the same thing about Trump's um, uh, followers. But at the same time, the UKIP supporters here, they come from a range of different backgrounds. It is mainly white, middle-aged uh, men from uh, specific regions in the country that have uh, voted in favour of UKIP or said that they would want to vote in favour of UKIP. But we did see in the campaign that UKIP provided um, during this referendum um, an alternative to the establishment that people simply saw as a new opportunity for voicing their frustrations with the way things are in the UK, in the UK differently to how they would 
uh, perhaps vote in a general election. So this referendum has been very different in a number of respects uh, compared to normal elections. And um, therefore, we've also seen different divisions um, uh, in the country. But um, UKIP managed to mobilize a group of voters that have not felt represented in normal politics. And they therefore feel that they have had a voice in this referendum and were finally listened to, which is not um, necessarily the case in, at the time of general elections. Before you mentioned the, the, what the Prime Minister would do, and, and uh, someone who was in the running to be Prime Minister was Boris Johnson, and he's someone who gets a lot of interest in the States, maybe because he's either American or he reminds people of another tussled-haired politician who's currently very popular there. Why did he decide not to run for Prime Minister after all the, all the lead-up? And, and uh, you know, do you know if any, what are the insiders saying? I mean, it's true. Boris Johnson is uh, a remarkable figure. He... Um, had been a journalist, then became an MP, then uh, stood to be Mayor of London and won twice. Uh, he, has, he has a remarkable capacity to look at a television camera, get his views across, to reach in places other politicians can't. And he chose, and it was a choice, I think, to uh, campaign for Britain to leave the UK. Now, Many political commentators suggested, though we can't see into his brain, so we don't know this is true, but it sounds it has all the rings of plausibility, that this was a personal calculation which was designed to uh, advance his long-term, or perhaps not so long-term, desire to become prime minister. And, uh, you know, especially if Britain just voted, say Britain just voted to remain in the EU... David Cameron was weakened but stayed on as Prime Minister for, it, for a bit, and then Boris Johnson would have been seen as the leading light in this campaign almost to leave the EU. And when Cameron went, as he said he would before the next general election in 2020, then Boris Johnson would have had a really good chance, he thought, of winning. However, unexpectedly, I think from his point of view, and certainly from many people it would appear in the Leave campaign's point of view, they won, i.e. Leave got more, got more than half the vote. And that triggered a political earthquake within both of the major British political parties. And in that earthquake, uh, which involved incredible degrees of personal... uh, Let's try and find um, broadcastable words here. um, (laughs) Sort of degrees of personal disloyalty. People who were on the same size and or friends or had been friends for years, suddenly all uh, squabbling with each other. After David Cameron, I should have added, had said he would no longer stay on as prime minister, triggering a huge struggle inside the governing Conservative Party to be its leader. And in the middle of all of that, one of the other Leave campaigners, Michael Gove and his people, his supporters, effectively came out with saying that Boris Johnson wasn't fit to be Prime Minister and that killed off Boris Johnson's chances and, you know, all that for that, as it were. In a sense, he'd made this decision to be on the Leave side with these calculations, doubtless, to some extent in mind and yet having won by the Leave vote winning, actually lost. And it simply tells you how in politics, not only in Britain, nothing is ever straightforward and predictable. Talking about things not being straightforward and, to use an Americanism, and crossing the aisle, Labour is now in dire straits at the same time as the Tories are having their own uh, leadership issues. 
someone's pointed out that you know if 48% of the population did vote to, to stay, they wouldn't all have been Labour voters. Why can't Labour snatch up some of those those uh, remain votes and, and solidify its position? The difficulty that the Labour Party has, and it is true, it's very unusual in British politics to have both its major parties, the Conservatives and Labour, uh, indulging in full-throttle civil wars at the same time. You've often had one or the other, but rarely, you know, rarely both. And certainly not since 1945, both at the same time. Now, the Labour Party chose a new leader uh, in September last year. Um, the previous leader, Ed Miliband, uh, whose brother, of course, uh, works in the United States running an international charity. Um, but Ed Miliband had lost the 2015 general election, immediately stood down. That triggered an election in the Labour Party, and the Labour Party had been given a new way of choosing its leader. And this way was for the members of Parliament to come up with a long list of potential candidates, or a shorter list, not, not a very short, short list, and then put that to the membership in the country. And as part of an attempt to open out the Labour Party, the Labour, they, they'd allowed people to join for £3, which these days is about $4. It would have been $5 at the time. And the soon-to-be three, the way things are going, a large number of new, rather radical people who'd been fed up with the Labour Party joined it you know, after the election. And it turned out that many of them were radical on the centre-left, and saw in one of the candidates who was on the list that the Labour Party put forward to its members somebody like them. Now, it's worth saying just for a second, how did this radical person, Jeremy Corbyn, get on the list? Because the members of Parliament wouldn't normally have put him on the short list. But what happened was many of those who didn't really agree with him thought we need to have a contest. We need to have not just, you know people on the centre, centre-right of the Labour Party, moderate part of the party, we need somebody who's nice and radical, so we'll put one of them on the list. Lo and behold, having done that as a sort of gesture of pluralism, they discovered that person, Jeremy Corbyn, won. And what this has meant ever since last September is that the Labour members, the people who are members of the Labour Party, really, really like Jeremy Corbyn, or many of them do, whereas the Labour MPs think he's incapable of winning a general election. And in the British political system, the only way a leader can really survive in Parliament is if the members of Parliament there support them. So what the Labour Party effectively has is a leader in the House of Commons who's been selected by members in the country whom the 80, over 80% 80 of the MPs have voted no confidence in. That's completely unsustainable. And we're now moving towards a challenge by uh, another Labour frontbencher called Angela Eagle, possibly others. There's another one called uh, Owen Smith who might join this race. So we're now moving forward to a terrible car crash sort of problem for the Labour Party where the current leader won't stand down and other people are putting themselves forward. And even the process to decide whether or not the current leader can stand again, is going to be challenged probably by the courts, So in the courts. So it's an extraordinary muddle. And, of course, Britain, as you said earlier, doesn't have a written constitution. And so these are just, you know, the British political parties, as in many countries, are just voluntary organisations with their own rules. But, in fact, they have a constitutional importance. Can you comment a little bit on Jeremy Corbyn's um, participation in the Remain campaign? I, I've heard some people complaining about his his lack of full-throttled support or enthusiasm to remain 
uh, potentially because of some previous year of skepticism that he harbored at some point? Well, Jeremy Corbyn was on the far left of uh, the Labour Party. So he'd have had views not so dissimilar from Bernie Sanders, really. I mean, you know, his sort of well to the left of British politics in the way Bernie Sanders is well to the left of American politics, but with a particular following amongst a small group. Well, not that small a group, it turns out, in either case. Traditionally, this part of the left was very unenthusiastic about the European Union because it saw the European Union as a sort of free market, neoliberal place for businesses to trade. It's a trading block. This is why the British rather liked it in many ways. It's a trading block. And the far left didn't like that at all. They wanted something that was more about cohesion, workers' rights and all of that. So Labour has been split as a party with regard to Brexit and it's been difficult for Corbyn to convincingly say that he is now the Remain campaigner. He was very hesitant about the kind of um, uh, agenda he would want to see the EU pursue and, and his support from the, for the EU in general. He, his, he historically has had a record of being against the EU, so for him to now come out as, as a Remainer has been quite a U-turn. And Corbyn himself had voted against Britain staying in the EU in the last time there was a referendum back in 1975 that he'd voted to leave. Now he's the leader of the Labour Party, which had a position of being in favour of being in the EU, which he and other members of the Labour leadership adhered to, but only in a way that certainly looking at it as an outsider looked pretty half-hearted. So the campaigning that was done was pretty limited by the Labour leadership, and most of it you know, quite a lot of it, you know, consisted of attacking the Conservatives for not doing very much themselves. So it wasn't a very convincing Labour campaign by the leadership. There were other Labour politicians who did campaign very hard, in fairness. So, you know, now Corbyn is being blamed for Britain leaving leaving the EU because he didn't galvanise the Labour vote to come out, or at least not in large enough numbers. And also, um, it's a very split party because of the kinds of experiences people have had from uh, EU integration and um, the kind of groups in society that that Labour represent. They do not all share, they do not have a common view on the benefits or drawbacks of of EU membership. So since Corbyn and and his uh, team did not provide a strong message in favour of Brexit and sort of elaborated on their policies in this regard. They simply didn't capture the traditional Labour electorate or any of the people that ended up going to UKIP, in fact, who would in normal party politics perhaps have been been part of, of the Labour group. The Labour Party struggled to get its vote out in this referendum because large numbers of its traditional supporters were very uneasy about immigration, very hostile to foreigners, and that's your traditional Labour working class vote, which is actually kind of slightly right-wing or authoritarian or nationalistic or xenophobic to some extent. Not always. I mean, I don't want to say they're always like that. Um, So Labour suffered a real problem here, and they're quite threatened Um, by the rise of the UK Independence Party. Um, The UK Independence Party 
has sought to see the United Kingdom leave the European Union, but UKIP won't go away now because UKIP has never been about just Europe. It's been about people feeling disenchanted with what goes on in London, feeling left behind economically, feeling uneasy about how their country has changed in terms of immigration, in terms of identity politics. And it has changed. Um, Immigration has changed the United Kingdom quite profoundly over the last few years, if only because here we are sitting in the middle of London, the UK's biggest region in terms of population, its richest region in terms of of economy. London is 12% of the UK's population, it is 23% of its economy. It contributes about one-third of UK tax income. Um, this is the heart of the UK. But this city, if you ever visit London and you then say, oh, I visited England or the United Kingdom. No, you haven't. You haven't visited the United Kingdom. You haven't visited England. You've visited London, which is a different part, almost a, 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 the undiscovered country of the United Kingdom. The UK is five parts. It's got Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, England and London. But this city is now approaching 10 million people, and it's down to around 40% white British. In the 1970s, it was around 90% white British. And there's a large number of people elsewhere, especially in England, who don't recognise the capital city, which, as I said, dominates this country. And it's the home of the political elite. And they seem more comfortable, from some people's perspective, living in this international globalised metropolis than they do going out to areas of England that have not exactly benefited from a globalised economy. So going back now to the, the actual Brexit campaign itself and, and what, sort of what, 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 what happened. So Americans are sort of asking us, is the media being blamed at all yeah. in terms of for, for the discourse? Uh, was there a great deal of fact-checking of a lot of the claims? So we had this claim from the Leave campaign of $350 million per week was spent on the EU yeah. that could then go on things like the NHS. What, what, what happened in terms of that, and what do we know now? The referendum campaign showed um, some trends in Western politics, which I think you see in the United States, you can see in Germany, and which you've also seen in Russia um, to some extent. Um, I think the the phrase which came into my mind during the referendum campaign, especially when I heard um, the Leave campaign, but to some extent also with the Remain campaign, but more so, far more so with the Leave campaign, was the title of a book about the media in Russia, which is, the title is, Nothing is True, But Everything is Possible. Um, so nothing was true about what would happen to the UK afterwards. This attitude of we don't care about experts we don't want to listen to um the world to to the imf we don't want to listen to the treasury or the bank of england we don't want to listen to academics um or the institute for fiscal studies never mind how independent they are just ignore those facts facts don't matter um but we can do everything britain can be a great trading power britain can be a part of the single market but not have to accept political control uh, or kind of political free movement of people and um kind of uh, checks on its sovereignty in terms of um, EU laws. Britain can do trade and relations immediately with the United States, China, Japan. It can do all these things. So, But no, it can't. You know, there were, one of the most amazing things about this referendum campaign was the lack of strategic thinking that we've seen now that Britain has left. Those of us who have worked on this topic for years have pointed out the lack of strategic thinking on the Leave side. You could argue it also applies to the Remain side in terms of where the European Union is heading in the long run. But it's become even more clear now that Britain has voted to leave the European Union that, as many of us were saying before the referendum happened, there was no plan. And there is no plan about what happens next. Partly because you can't plan 
because it, a large a large extent of what's going to happen next depends upon how the rest of the EU responds. The EU pretty much now controls the process of what happens to the UK in terms of its new relationship, in terms of when it leaves and so forth. I mean, the EU is just now waiting for the UK to trigger what's called Article 50, which is the withdrawal um, clause of the European Union's treaties. When that happens, the EU pretty much has control of the entire process. Britain has some influence, but it's the EU that will kind of determine what will actually happen next. And I think Britain has overlooked the difficulties that will actually play out when Prime Minister Theresa May, and she will be Prime Minister in about two hours, um, from, from when this podcast is being recorded, um, what will happen to her um, or to her government when she finally has to trigger this article. Um, and it will probably be later this year, early next year. Um, and that leaves a time frame of two years to get through it. So going back to the original question, there was a lot of wishful thinking um, on the Leave side, a lot of nonsense, but playing to emotions, playing to values, playing to kind of anti-elite, anti-establishment, anti-London, just like anti-Washington, anti-Brussels agendas, um, playing up people's fears. People pointed out that it was the Remain campaign that could be termed Project Fear, but actually the Leave campaign played on people's people's deep fears about immigration and changing identities, about being left behind and an unwillingness to become part of a globalised economy that is deeply unsettling to them. So they played on fears as well. And you can see some similarities here with what's happening in the United States with Donald Trump. I was asked when I was in Washington a few months ago, is a vote for Brexit a vote for Trump? And you can see the logic in terms of telling the world to go away, anti-immigration votes, listening to kind of very nice sounding kind of phrases that sound nice about kind of, you know, telling Europe, you know, we're going to take back control, uh, you know, we're going to make Britain great again and so forth. But no substance to it, no plan. It's all based on a lot of kind of hot air. Um, and now the reality's hit. The most, the biggest problem is that people are going to feel cheated. A lot of people in a year, two years' time, who voted to leave are going to be very angry. Now, at the moment, it's Remain voters that feel angry. They feel like they've been cheated, um, that people have been lied to, and, um, and this has kind of happened um, in a way that was completely unfair. But in a few years' time, when immigration has not gone down, because the UK depends upon immigration for its economic model, when Britain has negotiated a trade deal with the European Union, which continues to see Britain probably pay into the EU budget, remain in the single market, and therefore remain bound by EU laws, people are going to feel cheated by that. People are going to feel cheated when this money that was promised for the NHS doesn't materialise. They're going to feel cheated when economic areas that feel deprived and left behind don't change. And what do they do next? What do they vote for then? It's a similar question that has been raised about Trump. If Trump won the presidency of the United States and nothing changed for the people who voted for him, what do they do then? Where does their anger go then? And that's a question that's going to hang over British politics in the, for the foreseeable future. The main voters are angry right now, but I will not be surprised if in about a year or two years' time, Leave voters are left feeling very cheated indeed. What's the fallout for Scotland and, I and Northern Ireland? What's going to happen to them? Well, Scotland and Northern Ireland and, of course, London, all voted strongly, particularly in the case of Scotland and London, strongly to vote. They voted to remain in the EU. And, of course, by the same logic, you know, if you believe in the one vote is enough logic for leave, uh, you also have to accept that some parts of the United Kingdom, which are very different, and Scotland and Northern Ireland are effectively 
separate nations within a country. I mean, or Northern Ireland's case, it's more complicated than that. Um, and Scotland, in particular, of course, held its own referendum in September 2014 about whether or not it should leave the United Kingdom. That was one that David Cameron won, i.e. the Scots voted by 55 to 45 to stay in the UK. But the Scots and the Scottish government, uh, led by the Scottish National Party, are very strongly in favour of staying in the EU. So now the Scots feel that they, who voted to stay in the UK by 55 to 45 two years ago, are now in the United Kingdom, which is going to leave and in fact that the Scots will be dragged out of the EU by the English majority vote. So that begs the question whether the Scots will hold a second referendum on um, potentially leaving the UK, and if they did that, then they would presumably attempt to join the, U the EU. They, they, they Presumably they'd have to go through all the normal processes and deal with one or two of the other member states who are not over keen on sending out friendly signals about... Uh, parts of countries breaking away and then joining the EU, famously Spain, who doesn't want to, do not want to send out that signal too hard. Northern Ireland is different again. Northern Ireland also voted, voted to remain, and for it, it was for rather different reasons. And the reason for that is Northern Ireland is part of, well, it, it, it covers part of the landmass of the island of Ireland. The bigger part, of course, is uh, covered by the Republic of Ireland. These uh, they were turned into two separate countries when uh, the Republic of Ireland left the United Kingdom finally in the 1920s, it having been conquered before that in the distant past. Now, there is a long open border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, which will soon become, when Britain leaves the EU, a border between uh, Britain, which isn't in the EU, and the, the Republic of Ireland, which is in the EU, and it'll be an open border. How on earth is that going to be sorted out? Now, uh, the question of how it's sorted out it can either be the border could be closed or, more complicatedly, the border between the island of Ireland and the rest of Britain or Britain could be closed or with passport controls. So that creates the oddity of a country's citizens, the United Kingdom citizens, who are Northern Irish, having to get, have a passport to travel inside their own country, which certainly wouldn't go down well with unionists in Northern Ireland. Another bit of vocabulary here. Unionists refer to those in Northern Ireland who support remaining in the UK, and Republicans refer to those who would like to join the Irish to the south in the Republic of Ireland. So some way out will have to be found from all of this. Now, whether it will be some kind of internal travel document for UK citizens, backwards and forwards between Britain and Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland, Britain, I don't know. So that's why that's difficult too. And of course, the other issue to bear in mind with Northern Ireland is that the Good Friday Agreement, which brought, finally brought an end to the troubles uh, in Northern Ireland, hinged at least in part on uh, the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland being within the European Union with all the openness and trading and all of that, that brought with it. So that's potentially unsettled as well. And, of course, from some Republicans' point of view, they may see this as an opportunity finally to lobby for a united Ireland. Now, these are much deeper waters. So, um, it, 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 you know, once you shake the kaleidoscope, uh, you can never be quite certain what colours will end up where. And that's what the, the UK has done by voting to leave the European Union. I just have one last question. Uh, with, so you mentioned uh, the special relationship. So... Aside from trade, or maybe even sort of in, in the orbit of trade, how do you see the special relationship evolving or changing 
because of Brexit. Will there be big changes? What's going to happen? And maybe you could bring in some ideas. I mean, we have the NATO summit as well yeah. on what will what will our relationship within NATO vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, the special relationship sort of be? The UK-US special relationship is special in three areas. Nuclear weapons, intelligence sharing, and special forces. That is the core, the heart of the special relationship. Um, areas which the United States does not share a relationship with to quite the same extent with other countries. In intelligence sharing, it shares it with Australia, New Zealand, and Canada as part of Five Eyes that involves the UK. But those three areas are the heart of the UK-US special relationship. Obviously, the relationship is special in lots of other ways in other areas, historically, demographically, um, politically, um, in terms of sharing common law and things like that. Um, but that's the core of it. And that core won't be changed by Brexit, not immediately. If there are issues to do with Scotland, then that brings in the issues of Britain's nuclear weapons. That may change. Special forces and intelligence unlikely unless there are some form of major economic costs that lead on to major government um, budgetary changes that could you know, kind of undermine those but that doesn't look likely at the moment we must however also see that the uk us special relationship um, is part of a much wider us european special relationship or the transatlantic relationship is arguably the most special of any relationships between two regions of the world um, europe and the United States and Canada, let's not forget the Canadians in this, um, are bound together more intimately in economics, politics, society, um, in terms of culture and values and so forth, than any other two areas of the world are at the moment. So that makes the transatlantic relationship very special. And we have to remember the United States has special relations with lots of countries in, in Europe, and the UK has special relations with lots of countries. The UK has a special relationship with Ireland. It has a special relationship with Australia. It has a special relationship with Canada. Um, and it has a collective special relationship with the rest of the European Union. Um, so it's often said in, in Washington, D.C., that there are 28 countries, the 28 members of the European Union, who all think they have a special relationship with the United States. So how is, the, how is Brexit going to play into this? Well, it throws into doubt Britain's place within the transatlantic relationship. It puts it in a state of flux. Um, Britain has based its foreign policy since 1945 on three circles or three pillars. Um, the first was the Empire and the Commonwealth. Now that's gone and the Commonwealth, it's not a coherent political strategic actor that Britain can draw on. So that's not coming back, whatever some people may wish. Britain can develop closer relations with countries in the developing world, certainly, but the Commonwealth isn't seen as a strategic actor in international relations. That leaves Europe and the United States for the UK. Um, and to some extent, Britain has often tried to kind of balance between the two, try to be in Europe, but not entirely in Europe, be close to the United States, but obviously at the same time being a European power. By shifting out of the European Union, the UK has kind of said, well, we're not going to be in the European Union, but then it's going to still have to have a relationship with Europe. The, the United Kingdom will remain a main, a major European power um, in a military sense, in economic sense, in political sense, but not an EU power. And the EU is the predominant economic, social and non-traditional security actor or organisation in European geopolitics. NATO is the military actor. Um, so Britain is going to find itself in NATO. It's going to put more emphasis on NATO being the um, the transatlantic forum, something which some members of the states of the European Union might resist. They might say, well, no, actually, the European Union and NATO are two coherently separate 
organizations which complement one another um, but ultimately the European Union's members have a separate relationship with the United States and Britain in that position well it, it finds its awkward position in transatlantic relations reinforced it was often said a few years ago that um, Americans are, are from Mars and Europeans are from Venus um, well, where in where is Britain in this dichotomy um, at the time some people said well that means Britain is in the middle Britain is from Earth um, well okay but where does Britain fit into this now um, it's it's made it even clearer it's not too sure if it's going to be uh, kind of from Venus or from Mars it really is sitting in the middle you could argue Britain would become a kind of a Canada to the European Union but will Britain feel comfortable playing the role of Canada um, to the European Union that that remains to be seen so that's it for this installment of Extra Innings from the Ballpark. Thank you to my co-host, Denise Barron, and to our contributors, Tony Travers, Sarah Hageman, and Tim Oliver. And thank you to all of Denise's Facebook friends and Twitter followers who contributed questions. The Ballpark is produced by Denise Barron, with contributions from co-hosts Sophie Donzelman and Chris Gilson. That's me. And also with help from the LSE's High Five Bid Fund and the U.S. Embassy in London. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. We love them. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Let us know on Twitter at LSE underscore ballpark or send us an email at uscenter at lse.ac.uk. You can also send us an audio message of up to one minute with your comments. We'll feature your opinions, tweets, emails, and audio recordings on an extra innings podcast later this season. Be sure to tune in next time when we'll be talking about criminal justice. Thanks for listening. Play ball. Uh, I don't think there's anything else. I could talk about this for hours. Well, but... <laughs>
Um, I don't think there's anything else I could no. talk about this for hours. Well, that's but... what I'm saying. <laughs>